Hello, hello, it's Lincast, new episode. Excited for this one. Um, Marco Valente, he is a friend I know from long back, exactly 12 years ago. 12. He was, he was a program assistant at Blinkage Technology School. The same place I was studying, he used to be coordinating and teaching for Master of Sustainable Leadership, probably not saying the right title. I was doing another master in the system program, in the sister program. Um, it was called Master in Sust uh, Sustainable Product Service Innovation. Uh, since then, we stayed in touch. Um, one thing that I would love to say about this man is, he is super humble. He is super educated. He knows what he talks about. He has tons of experience when it comes to leadership, managing complexity in um, organizations, small and big. He has tons of tons of experience facilitating workshops for different topics. So uh, I wanted him to be on this podcast to really talk about the complexity, the nature of complexity happening in organizations. Really drill down on this. Marco, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for uh, the invite. Thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you feeling? I feel good. Greetings, everybody. And it's really good to see you, Berad. Uh, yes, we do go back a long time. And also, it's been a pleasure to witness how you uh, also have brought system innovation from a master's program to such great uh, levels. And I just learn as much from you at every conversation, uh, probably twice as much I learn from you than you can ever get from me. Uh, but it's, uh, it's really wonderful to be in a conversation with you, uh, with you today. I want to dive right into it, and I want to start with a burning question. What is leadership? Ooh, do we have two, three hours? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a time, probably you know, there was a time when we were teaching at this master's program, uh, Leadership for Sustainability, so we, we took a deep dive into all the theories, mm -hmm. and there is such a, a wide, uh, even uh, disagreement on the definitions, and so... I guess uh, leadership and complexity and sustainability and facilitation, these are all terms that are hotly contested in terms of what does it even mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the paradox to me is that we can do really good work without all agreeing on a definition. Right. Um, to me, I think leadership is, I don't know, the act of taking responsibility, having agency at the individual but also mm -hmm. at a collective level. I think groups can take leadership themselves. I think individuals mm. can take leadership themselves. And sometimes it's positional, you know, it's connected to the job that you have, the title that you have. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's leadership without authority, uh, without a title, for example. Um, you know, there have been so many definitions about maybe it's the capacity of a community to take care of its own future and decide. Mm -hmm. uh, today, I see it more as a way of navigating complexity. Uh, but, but let's use these as like, you know, really tentative definitions. We write these in pencils yes. for now, and then we will delete them in 20 minutes because we will change our minds. So, so for all the folks out there, this is a, going to be a bit of an experimental conversation. Uh, we are going to walk on certain topics that are very, very fluid. 
there is not so much definition he, here. And I know Marco, he wants to be very precise with his, with his word. And I want to, I need to say this because I want to put him on a, on a very comfortable position. We are going to go on this intellectual wrestle, ping pong together. And there is, we're not trying to be right or wrong. We just want to explore different areas. And that sounds great, but also because it seems in keeping with the themes that we will be talking about. We're talking about complexity. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about how to navigate uncertainty. And if we knew exactly how to do it, then we have a schedule and we decide, you know, five minutes this and five minutes that, that yeah. we should be talking about something else, like maybe, maybe assembly lines. <laughs> exactly. And, I, you know, for, for this conversation, we had certain questions, curiosities uh, developed, but, you know, the way I want to always have this conversation is to be, to be, to have it as fluid and to have it as sort of like a back and forth. Um, Marco, just, out of curiosity, like what is complexity in the context of an organization, right? Mm. So let's start from where this is familiar, right? So I don't know mm -hmm. how the uh, people who listen to your podcast, how familiar they are with theories about complexity. We can also um, go a little deeper into some specific sure. theories and frameworks, but let's say the last two years, uh, mm -hmm. for good or for bad, they have given mm -hmm. us a masterclass in complexity <laughs> because we, I think it kind of stripped the veil from the fact that the world is unpredictable, mm -hmm. pandemics first and mm -hmm. uh, conflicts later and then, well, pandemics and then economic turbulence and supply chain disruptions and then conflicts. Um, mm -hmm. So that is something that we have a visceral experience of that I mm -hmm. think we are wired to understand as humans. And that is that the world is unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, so I just want to preempt this whole conversation, this whole hour or however long we talk together, is that I'll be talking about a lot of paradoxes, like things that mm -hmm. seem to be like, okay, A and the contrary of A seem to be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the first paradoxes <laughs> to me is that we are wired to understand and navigate uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're really bad at it. It's mm -hmm. one of those like, uh, I don't know, quantum, quantum kind of statements where, you know, the cat is alive and dead at the same time, or maybe mm -hmm. either. So, uh, uncertainty we have seen in the last two years. So let's say, let's use uncertainty as a proxy for complexity, just as the first one. And the mm -hmm. second one would be the fact that, uh, in spite of having all the information available, if you could have all the information available, you cannot make reliable predictions about the future. And that's an easy one to prove because, you know, if you look at expert forecasters, they make mm -hmm. forecasts six months from now about what will happen in the world. And mm -hmm. they're good as, you know, astrology or, you know, you throw a die and you say, oh, maybe it's going to be this. Maybe it's going to be that. Like it's a random guess. You're throwing darts blindfolded. So uncertainty, we don't know. Uh, lack of predictions. That's another measure of complexity. The other one is that there are so many variables that are like meshed together that we don't really know in a complex, meaning highly intricated um, situation where there are so many mm -hmm. variables playing together. We don't know what causes what. Mm -hmm. You look at the Dow Jones and it's down. And then the president of the United States yesterday said something and people write in the newspapers, 
oh, the discourse of the president caused the Dow Jones to go down. Actually, we don't know because there were like 200 mm -hmm. things that happened in the world yesterday. <laughs> there is only correlation between these two. So to me, there is uncertainty. We don't know. We don't know how the world works. There is lack of predictions. And there is the fact that so many variables are uh, meshed together that it's hard to see causes and effects. And mm -hmm. then... And that seems like a recipe for disaster. Like, how do we even navigate yeah. this? But at the same time, I think we're really well equipped to navigate it at the same time, because mm. we've always been, you know, uh, homo sapiens, we've always been navigating uncertainty and complexity. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, we have very built-in ways that we can actually use to understand complexity. And in a sense, we're biased and we're... Uh, not well equipped at the same time. And so to me, some, there's something around, you know, what kind of cultures we build and how do we accept the uncertainty and how do we work productively with it? And is the culture around us and is the institutions around us and is the culture of our work environment kind of helping us? Is it accepting and acknowledging complexity or are they trying to push it away? Got it. And you may already guess that I have an opinion about that. <laughs> And I think you too, in terms of, you know, how do we accept complexity in our work, mm -hmm. from our managers, in our uh, goals and um, objectives and key results and KPIs and so on. You know, so just, I just want to dive right into this because I, in, we know each other and I'm, comfort, I, I'm, I'm comfortable around you and I want to sort of like really push each other here. I think we need, we need, I mean, I haven't looked into what they're teaching to the kids these days, but we need a new uh, curriculum that really talks about what is very, very, like we don't need to understand, we don't need to teach kids geography anymore. They can look at the Google map, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. done by Google map. Let the, uh, it's very interactive. Let them just play around with Google map and they understand mm -hmm. where they are, where the region is, the continent and what have you. But we need to, un we need to re redesign the curriculums to talk about mm -hmm. complexity. To talk mm -hmm. about finance, to talk about friendship, to talk about love, to talk about mm -hmm. emotional intelligence. Because these are the things that are becoming really, really, really important in the age that everything is getting automated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also because there is so much knowledge that is available. So what is, right. what is now that we need to learn? And probably it's, uh, some people call it the metacognitive, uh, how to think and how to learn but there is so much knowledge available. And also what, what I'm hearing from you, Berat, is also speaking to me, it sounds that it's speaking to the human qualities of how mm -hmm. do we learn to, to have empathy to each other? How do we learn to collaborate? How do we learn to have emotional intelligence, which seems to be equally important uh, in a world that we don't understand uh, too well. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, that's, that's another topic, but like, you know, back mm -hmm. to the complexity is that we didn't have this language. We didn't have, we didn't have uh, enough set of tools to talk about mm -hmm. complexity. You know, the thing you said something really nice that um, in between the words that there are a lot of things correlated, but not mm -hmm. they don't have a causation or rela relationship. And that mm -hmm. itself, I think, if the majority of folks, citizens in, so in society would understand this just mm -hmm. really simple uh, term or statement, I think a lot of our uh, misunderstanding, frustration in the society would be, would be tolerated much better. It would be mm -hmm. resolved much better because a lot of things 
correlate, but they aren't necessarily form a causational relationship. Mm. And that's one of the big, to me, that is one of the big causes of, uh, I think, confusions and misunderstandings when people double down on an assumption that they have. So, so let me bring it down to uh, work like a corporate environment, because I know mm-hmm. that in, in our conversations, we also want to touch a bit upon how does it show up very concretely? Like, you know, we mm-hmm. teach programs to help leaders to uh, lead in a complex world, for example. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times you see correlations between two events and you make up a theory and you can get really convinced about here's how things work. And yet uh, in complexity, actually, you don't really know exactly or you would benefit from hearing different views or you would benefit from making your idea about how things are happening. Mm-hmm. an object of your observation. So you, mm-hmm. you hold it a bit more lightly. In our company, um, I work with cultivating leadership and we have this way of saying, uh, we have strong opinions, but we hold them lightly. So strong mm-hmm. opinion, lightly held, meaning mm-hmm. I can have an opinion, but the opinion doesn't own me. And that is even more important when there is uh, this notion of causal opacity that we don't really see clearly the link between cause and effect. Then we hold our opinions a bit more lightly. We test it. And I know that you do a lot of work helping companies to, uh, you know, do small prototypes. We don't actually know which idea is going to win, but we place a mm-hmm. hundred small bets and actually we're just testing hypotheses here. Um, and that's one of the ways that to me builds a, a bit of an intellectual humility. I don't know how things are working. And I, and I heard your recent podcast, uh, uh, about, um, making very cheap experiments as ways to test hypotheses and learn more because in complexity, there's so much that you don't know yet. Uh, so I think it's an exciting way forward for, for people to test their, their ideas and their hypotheses when they believe that there is actually causation. They only see correlation, but okay, let's put this idea to test in a, in a safe and in a cheap way, for instance. So I think, I think especially since the advent of the internet, Web one, web two, now we are at the brink of web three and more engagement. Um, we went from, you know, before internet, you may have for certain event to happen, you may have like few variables in your mind. Mm-hmm. Like you, you watch something on TV, for example, something happened mm-hmm. in your country, then there's a TV, there's a commentary to talk about it, there's a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Now, you are in the midst, you are in the, in the boilerplate that bombarded by so many different ideas or like mm-hmm. direction as to what this is happening. So you went from two variables or three variables, let's say mm-hmm. few variables in mind as to what the cause is to many variables right now. So, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think that's why maybe like in, 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 on Twitter, when you go there and there is, Sometimes it feels like you are in the middle of a war zone that everyone is going, everyone is going back at <laughs> each other. Because, you know, I think holding, being in the middle of so many variables and not knowing which one mm. is the, is the suspect is that everyone, every variable mm. is a suspect, but not being able to systematically test mm. them and refute them. I think being in the middle of so many, so many potential causes could mm. be confusing overwhelming and to a certain extent mm. make someone freeze like I, I don't know what to do cognitive overload i would say 
Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is super interesting. So I'm hearing from you, well, I'm picking from what you're saying, two things. One is, uh, to me, there is uh, like an objective case because people people ask, you know, in these books about complexity, and I, and I read many of them, like people ask, is the world getting more complex or are we just selling the idea to people and we're saying, oh, the world is more getting more complex, you know, take our programs. Is the world objectively becoming more complex? Mm-hmm. And actually... And I hold it lightly, so true to what I just said five minutes ago. Uh, I really believe that there are good reasons to believe that it is becoming more complex, like objectively. For example, Mm -hmm. if you think about some probably like um, underlying currents, uh, if you think about the markets are more interconnected today than they were before. Mm -hmm. Communication at a distance, as you just said, you know, communication can go from here to the other end of the world in an instant and there is many to many communication that it can influence something uh in major ways and before we only had few channels of communication that were few to many like just one channel speaking to millions of people and now we have so much communication that is also horizontal mm-hmm. uh, the rate of innovation you know much more about this than i can possibly yeah. muster but the rate of innovation seems to be accelerating uh, probably unicorns die and are born and die faster than 30, 50 years ago. I, I'm, I'm sure that there is objective data on that. So that seems to just suggest that probably complexity is real. Like there is something objective that you can say that complexity is increasing. Uh, uncertainty, that's an easy one. You look at the predictions of, you know, like, can we predict what's going to happen in six months from now? And it seems that we can't. Uh, and so there is an objective case. Actually, complexity seems to be increasing. The second here that I'm that I'm hearing from you is the second thing is um, because there is so much data around. It seems that there is more possibilities for. I know some people call it sense making, like Gary Klein calls it sense making. There are so many yeah. possibilities that you can create a coherent picture of what's going on out there, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not it's true. Uh, because you're bombarded by so many data, you can just draw a unicorn out of three stars a line. And you can say, well, <laughs> this is my conspiracy theory about, I don't know, Elvis is alive and is living in the Bahamas or whatever. <laughs> and it's not because there is so much data. Paradoxically, more data didn't make it possible only to find the better sources of information, but also made it more possible to create a lot of um, noise in the signal and people can come up with whatever theory they want because they can collect a few data in a row and say, you know, here's my theory that such and such is living with Elvis somewhere. Now I I don't have expertise much about the misinformation crisis, but it's, but from the sense making kind of theories, you can say uh, there is more noise. And then that goes back also to the question of how do we test some of our assumptions about what is going on and how do we Mm -hmm. navigate this? Because, I mean, in the end of the day, we also have to make decisions. We have to navigate complexity. We have to work with our peers. We have to make decisions every time in the face of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And actually, on that note, I'm actually optimistic because I've seen that there is a lot that we can do, even mm-hmm. in the face of uncertainty and complexity. We can work with our teams. We can work in productive ways. We can manage, uh, I know it's a bit of a bad word, but we we can navigate, let's say, uncertainty in productive ways. And uh, there is a lot, there's a lot of good things that actually we can do as well. I think so too. I'm very optimistic. Like there is, there is a lot of tendency to be, it's, it's easier to be negative than positive. Um, but yeah. I don't see myself as, I, I like to, I like to 
call myself as impossibilist. Impossible. Po- no, possibilist. Possibilist. Like, yes. Yeah. It's. I think a possibilist. I was. I was exactly thinking about this a few days back on when I was biking to work. It's like I don't want to be a negative because negative is too much. I don't want to be a, like a overt positive too because that's naive. Mm-hmm. But I like to be possibilist. Mm-hmm. I picked up an, an, another book I was reading um, because po- a possibilist look at both options because mm-hmm. you look at what is possible. And what is possible could be negative and could be positive, right? But um, so it's be, it's mm. difficult, different from being overtly optimist or overtly negative. It's like, okay, what's on the table? What are my possibilities, right? Mm. And I, if I if I get to a point that the odds of mm. something bad is going to happen. You said something beautiful, intellectual humility. I need to have the intellectual humility to accept it, mm-hmm. but say that, okay, this is coming my way. It's highly um, possible, but I do my best mm-hmm. to, in despite of the likelihood of this mm-hmm. negative thing to happen, I do my best to turn it around and turn it into positive. So Absolutely. I'm a, I... I'd see myself as if someone that is look at as a as a as a possibilist. I would like to be a positive possibilist. That's beautiful, and uh, it's it's great because I mean, in the end, it's well, it's probably the best approach that we can have towards. Well, if something is coming my way and I don't, I cannot choose whether or not it comes my way. How can I turn that into a possibility myself? Uh, that is my. Uh, my friend and colleague, she's also my boss, but if she hears this podcast, she will laugh at the notion she is my boss because it's a very flat, hierarchical organization. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Garvey-Berger, she's the CEO of Cultivating Leadership and one of the four founders. And uh, um, she, she wrote a really nice book about, uh, I don't have a bias here uh, just because my boss wrote a book. <laughs> she wrote a really beautiful book. I honestly believe it's a beautiful book. It's called The Simple Habits for Complex Times together with Keith Johnson. And, uh, and she wrote about how we lead in complexity. And to your point of being a possibilist, she talks about the fact that embracing complexity can actually be liberating because you you free yourself from the notion of, you know, what is probable. So you project into the future what seems to be the probability that mm-hmm. something will happen. And so you free yourself from the notion of the probable because we don't really predict well anyhow. Um, mm-hmm. And you can delight into the possible. You can also open up yourself to new mm-hmm. possibilities and, and opportunities, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, mm-hmm. You can also free up the imagination of, uh, you know, just a few things are really impossible in the future. You just, just, I guess you have to go back to, I don't know, basic physics or I don't know. Uh, you, you go back to some fundamentals that we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the rest, there is a lot that is up for grabs. Uh, and, uh, you know, that the future is unknown can also be a tremendous source of, it seems to me, and you know a lot about this, it, that the fact that the very fact that the future is unknown can be a tremendous mm. source of opportunity and possibility, innovation, mm. um, and, uh, and also it can be liberating, uh, as well. It can liberate the creativity of the human mind as well. Are you at the position to talk about sort of like, so I want to like look into the organization because mm-hmm. for me, you know, I'm running a 16 people team now, maybe in future it will double soon. I don't know when, 
you talk, you work with, with organizations, small and big. Uh, I work with big organization as well as a smaller organization. So I would like to get your point on what at stakes for organization if they mm-hmm. don't respond well mm-hmm. to complexities, increasing complexity of our today world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. design for it. Like in design, designing for it could be re uh, improving their organization and structure, developing new products or services, but actively mm. design for complexity, mm. design to address the complexity that is coming okay. um, in the way of everyone. Uh, that is a really good question, Virad. Uh, so, uh, a minute of context. So, one of the things that we do, that I do together with my colleagues at Cultivating Leadership, is that we um, as a consultant, as a trainer, as a teacher, we, we help our clients to navigate complexity. Mm-hmm. And in very concrete ways, what that means is we run programs where we develop the, the muscles, like the skills for, okay, how do you navigate complexity in very concrete kind of work environments? We talk to people who are very senior in an organization. We talk to people mm-hmm. at different levels of the organization. We talk to technological companies, manufacturing companies, pharma companies, Mm -hmm. they all have the same challenges. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're navigating the unknown. They're navigating paradoxes. They're navigating team motivation. They need to get people on board. They need to uh, make hard decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of that in the face of the uncertainty, they have budget cuts from above. They have Mm. challenges from uh, the people who report to them. So in very concrete ways, what it looks like is that we work with them and we partner with them in a uh, very interactive, very collaborative way, very hands-on way to Mm -hmm. to help them see and navigate Mm -hmm. complexity. Uh, Mm -hmm. To your question, uh, what is the risk of not doing it? Um, I don't know. I don't want to... uh, I, I like to frame it more in the positive, but but I see what I see exactly. your point. Like, what no, would be? Yeah, I didn't want, I didn't want no, to no. put you in a position to be alarmist or like. <laughs> no, but no, no, I no. think I think it's really important to get yeah. your take on this because you're really in the trenches and like seeing. Yeah, so let me frame it this way. No, no, it's a it's a beautiful question, and I wasn't I didn't want to shy away from it. Uh, let's put it this way: when companies come to us, usually they come to us because they see. Um, mm usually they come to us and let me make this not a generalization, but like 30% of the time, 40% of the times they see that in spite of throwing Mm. money at a problem, throwing Mm. money at people uh, Mm. and putting more resources and more people to work on a problem, the problems are still complex. They don't get solved. And there are, for example, and maybe you see this also with your companies, there are some things that you work with, which are technological kind of challenges. So you need to put in the right engineer, the right data analyst and whatever. And there are some team challenges that even if you add twice as many people to the challenge, they won't really get solved because these are human challenges like teamwork Mm -hmm. or uh, Mm -hmm. morale and motivation or... Um, how do we navigate complexity and uncertainty? And so usually they come to us if some of them would come to us if they've treated a complex problem as if it were an analytical experts-based problem. They come to us and they say, well, actually that didn't work. Okay, I think we need to train the skills and train the muscles of how we look at this problem 
We don't need twice as many people working on it. We don't need more engineering. We don't need more data. We actually probably need to look at the problem in a different way. And so the challenge, so to, to your earlier question, I think the challenge is when people want to treat an unpredictable world as if it were predictable and people want mm-hmm. to double down. Mm-hmm. And I say this like really in a, in a gentle way without putting blame because there's so much around us, around our culture that is pushing us that way, that is pushing mm-hmm. us that way. 100%. So like, uh, yeah, if only we had more data, if only we had more mm-hmm experts on this, if only we could give this to the engineer. Um, and we have rewards for when we do that and when we succeed. So there is a lot of pressure around us to treat these problems as solvable. And sometimes they're not solvable or they're solvable, but with a very different approach. And I also mm-hmm. heard you in the latest podcast talk about innovation and experimentation. I know that this is work that you do so well, where mm-hmm. you don't need to spend twice as much. Actually, probably you need to cut down the costs of the experiment. It's more about learning, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. So usually they come to us when they tried to solve complex problems as if they were analytical engineering problems. The second, the second time that they come to us, which is very connected to the first one, is when they talk about a, when they try to address these challenges as if they were technical challenges, but they neglected the human aspect the human aspect of the challenge. Team motivation, for example. Oh, Mm -hmm. we've done a reorganization now. We put people in new positions and the work is not picking up as much as we hoped. Mm -hmm. They addressed it from a technical kind of analytical perspective, but they ignored ignored the, the human aspect. This is a human challenge. This is a leadership challenge. Uh, Mm -hmm. People have been merged into another company and you Mm -hmm. threw money at them, resources at them and say, why are these people not more productive? Well, there is not only so much that you can do. There is a lot that you can do with these technical approaches. But sometimes if Mm -hmm. it's a human challenge, uh, some people call it, uh, Heifetz, one of the originators of this concept, calls it an adaptive challenge. Meaning it's not something that you can only do with a technical expertise. It involves a human dimension of, you know, people talk about their own leadership challenge to this. This is something that has to do with my identity. We've mm-hmm. been bought by this new company and now we're joining their team and my identity feels threatened because I'm not valued as an expert. So this is where you would call in a facilitator and not necessarily just somebody to re-engineer the office chairs and you give them a bonus. Sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't. I would say more often it doesn't work if you ignore the human aspect of it. And so these are examples where probably speaking to your question about what are Mm. the costs of ignoring complexity, you Mm. treat the complex problem as if it was something that can be solved by more power of analysis or more experts, or you throw more money at it. And some other times it's because you treat a complex human problem as if it was Mm -hmm. a technical problem. You ignore the human dimension of it. How do we need to make sense of this, for instance? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And I chewing on this a lot. And one thing I could reflect on is, um, you know, we see it. I mean, you, you said it, you caught me off guard from the beginning that, that by saying that organizations like to throw money and resources on problems. And they think it's an analytical problem. It's something mm. that we need to quant. It's like a, they can battle this challenge with quantity, but sometimes, you don't need more people. You don't know. You don't need more resources. You just need to understand 
the human aspect of it, especially mm. because th- that's that's where the complexity lies. I would say between mm. between between human to human, human one to many, one to one collaboration and relationships. And I I see it in our um, work as well with big organizations that you know they 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 have you know for for a very small application, let's say. They have, for example, many product managers, mm. developers, and uh, and designers. Mm. With that, still they they have to reach out and hire an agency like us, which we don't have the resources that they have. Mm. We just a good team. We're just basically a good team. Well, congrats smaller- for building that. <laughs> It's smaller and, mm. you know, a lot smaller, but that's sort of like, that's my ongoing, like, curiosity, curiosity on this topic is like, wow, actually, you don't really need to have more, more of more of mm. things to get things done. You actually need to really focus on your people, focus mm. on building a team, mm. building a culture around your team, mm. having meaningful rituals around it. And let that environment to be a nurturing environment. And mm-hmm. you just need a great environment that allows, well, I mean, you need to have a team. You need to have like, you know, defined roles, what have you. You need to have people that can, you know, talented mm-hmm. and can deliver. Then you need to put it in an environment, culture, in an environment that is nurturing, that is, mm-hmm. that, that is, that is designed, that is well designed. And, that's what you need. That's the secret sauce, I would say. That's beautiful what you said, Barad, because the, the whole notion to me about uh, building a team, yes, the power of a team to um, tackle these challenges. Uh, we're redesigning, we're, we're running a program, fairly su- successful program for a big, uh, for a big corporation. Mm-hmm. And um, we focus on, uh, as much as we focus on the content that we teach when we build a leadership program, we focus just as much on building relationships in the type of leadership work that they do with one another in these small groups, because at the end of this four months, three months, four months program, people come back to us and they say, I've seen that a lot of people at my leadership level have similar challenges. I know that I can reach out to them. And also they say, uh, I notice how, I can open up to people who are supposed to be experts like me. And if we mm-hmm. meet at a meet at a business meeting, we only talk about our accomplishments and we don't talk about the very human struggles. Actually, we're struggling mm-hmm. with the same problems. And that goes back to your culture question about, well, if people have a culture of being vulnerable, of saying, I don't know the answer to this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really changes a lot the quality of the conversations that people can have in how they embrace complexity. And, and, and your other point about, you know, building this nurturing environment, mm. I think is great because that can help you to build a culture that can embrace complexity, mm-hmm. not just embrace complexity and say, oh, everything is complex, whatever comes, but actually embrace complexity for the sake of navigating it better, not pretending mm-hmm. that, you know, we could wish it away. We could wish the uncertainty away. 
And, and exactly as you said, you know, we, we only build a nurturing mm -hmm. environment. We cannot design mm -hmm. a team. We cannot design teamwork, mm -hmm. but we can create some preconditions. Like, you know, you can garden, um, mm -hmm. you can, uh, you can put a good soil, some seeds, some water, some enabling conditions, some people saying mm -hmm. complexity theory, and then things emerge or they don't, but, but you can take care of the space, the quality of the space. And we've seen that yeah. in facilitation as well. I mean, you can create mm -hmm. conditions that are appropriate to, you know, teamwork, team intelligence, collective intelligence, what mm -hmm. have you, uh, but you cannot force it. You cannot design it. I mean, you can't, I, I don't think in your experimentation and innovation work, you lock 10 people in a room and say, be creative now or else <laughs> it doesn't really work, uh, but you can create some really good conditions for that, for instance. And that still helps I, a lot as opposed to engineering a team and say, here's the secret sauce, because there is no secret sauce, but there are some enabling conditions. It's a beautiful analogy that um, to, to dealing with complex in situation or complex environment that mm. you really cannot micro design. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing. If you, in case that one thing that they can design human relationship, Good luck. <laughs> uh, it, it's, that's not possible. I think you said nicely. It's like we can go make sure that the soil is um, mm. of high quality. Mm. The seeds we pick the right seeds. Um, there is enough sun around it. There is mm. enough water around it. Mm. We can aim to have the best conditions, mm. but then. Um, we plan the seed. We, of course, we need to wish that we would be lucky for it to grow and yeah. turn into a young, nice young tree. We need to continuously work on it. Mm. We need to continuously monitor it mm. and just be in conversation with it because, you Absolutely. know, um, it's, it, it, the feedback loop needs to be in place because and then, then how else you could you could make sure that mm. you are on the right path, right? So all this thing here, but at the and what at the end of the day, with placing all these measures and conditions, it might go not the way you expected. Yeah. Yes, and uh, so let me put uh, because I know that in some previous conversations you also asked me some questions, and I and I wonder if some of your um, listeners to your uh, podcast are also. Curious about, okay, so let's give to the exact same expert, the exact same right. example. Let's give some like very nerdy kind of analogy because actually there's sure. a lot of theory behind this that we say it's very intuitive for people. Everybody who's done gardening would have understood the metaphor that we used mm -hmm. from a complexity theory perspective. So let's be nerdy mm -hmm. for a minute. So uh, imagine you have a technical system. Mm -hmm. You engineer a technical system because, you know, you give uh, the purpose and uh, the, the function of uh, uh, what this technical product is going to be. So you design it from above as if, you know, like a god designing, you know, here's my clock, here's my iPod, here's my watch, and you can design it. You have control mm -hmm. over all the variables. You can micro-engineer the variables. You can micro-engineer the details. You can scale up easily because you know mm -hmm. nature is the same so you can use these raw materials and these products you have control of the variables you standardize the process you use best practice that apply everywhere you know you build a watch here you build a watch in uganda it's pretty much the same thing you know the laws of mm -hmm. nature are the same 
and you can force these variables to fit together and you can engineer your way out. Uh, if you try to do any of each of those items on the list with humans, you realize that they have human will. <laughs> so first of all, they rebel the whole project. Second, you need a lot of resources and a lot of uh, uh, power to influence their motivation, but a lot of motivation is internal. And, uh, and what you can do still, because you know people can choose to come and work for your company and not for the other company, the rival one, you can still put some boundaries in place and say, well, here is you know, here are some boundaries around this experiment. This is what cannot mm -hmm. happen. Or this is what we say is not allowed to happen as a culture. So you can create some boundaries, mm -hmm. like, you know, the box of the mm -hmm. garden. You create the enabling conditions, for example, with example from other leaders or mm -hmm. uh, minimal specifications. I would love to uh, zoom in on minimum specifications in, in five minutes later. Uh, but then you can, you can create these enabling conditions and these attractors in complexity theory that may or may not work, but you try different things. You try to build different rituals. I also heard you say things about rituals and culture, and then mm. you see what organically happens, but mm. you can only see that when you see humans interact, then you learn, mm. as you said, you know, you just learn as you go because this human system then needs constant attention and care and learning what works and what doesn't work. So you are managing attractors, boundaries, and learning from the system as you go. So we've been just, a, you know, nerdy for a minute on something that sounds super intuitive. But then again, it's very easy if people come from a business school or a military school or a management by uh, OKRs uh, mm. kind of mentality, mm. in spite of their best intentions, that they get tasked with, okay, now design a team give them this OKRs and uh, design the team culture as if, you know, you can design the behavior of your spouse or you can design mm. the behavior of your child in two years from now. I mean, good luck with that, right? <laughs> or make a strategic <laughs> plan to change them. Well, I wouldn't be happy if somebody made a strategic plan to change me. Mm. So, uh, mm. So these are just some of the thoughts about like the, the theory kind of uh, substrate that, um, actually gives us some ideas around how to work with the human complexity of, uh, mm. of the people. Uh, just to, uh, to, to zoom in on that notion of minimum specifications, uh, because I, mm. I remember that it was one of the conversations that we had in our emails back and forth before recording this, uh, that one of our curiosities was around, okay, how do you work with teams and how do mm. you work with the, the paradox? It seems like an apparent paradox between you manage a team, so you're in mm. charge, and you have to put mm. some rules and some guidelines and some boundaries. And mm. at the same time, you know that there is a lot of creativity coming from individual initiative, self-organization, mm. and getting the best of the people in the mm. room. So how do you dance mm. between, I don't know, some mm. people call it, you could dance between chaos and order or, you know, con management kind of control and self-organization mm. or... Uh, giving rules and allowing people whatever they want to do. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't have an answer to that, but mm -hmm. I know that some of the things that have worked really well with us as a company and when we teach that to some of our clients is this notion mm -hmm. of uh, uh, minimum specifications. It's coming from mm -hmm. this notion that is coming from liberating structures. Um, and it's one of the ways in which you can allow conditions for self-organization, for effective self-organization. Mm -hmm. So uh, what does it mean? Like a minimum specification would be what are the minimum rules that you can put in place mm -hmm. that you absolutely need as boundary conditions so that self-organized behavior can emerge 
people are aware of the boundaries of what is not allowed. And mm. they have some, the minimum list, the, the shortest possible list of guidelines. If you have to start something, if you have to do something, follow these two or three generic rules. But it's called the minimum specifications because it's a minimum list. Like, can you make that list as short as possible? Mm. And, then, and then you trust in people's uh, capacity to self-organize. Maybe you heard the example from, uh, I'm looking behind me because I have a stash of like 30 different books about leadership and complexity. Uh, maybe you heard the example of, uh, I think it was the Ritz-Carlton. It's, it was one of the mm. major hotel mm. chains. They mm. had a problem with customer service because mm. what happens is you have a clerk at night. They're mm. not the managers because, you know, people who do a night shift are fairly junior. You cannot put the highest paid person to do the night shift. And sometimes people who buy the most expensive uh, room get a complaint mm. and they say, oh, there are bugs in my bed or I'm not happy with this. I want to change room. And mm -hmm. the person who was on the lowest rank felt not empowered to make a, such a choice. And it's like, I don't know. What do I do? Do I call the manager now? What do I do? So what they did, minimum specifications, they said, uh, we entrust you $2,000 uh, we trust your judgment because it's too expensive for you to call the manager or to call the manager's manager. So mm. if it's a decision within $2,000, you do it. You use your best judgment. And tomorrow morning when we are doing the next shift, you tell us what you did and why you did it. And then we can review it because it's too expensive uh, mm -hmm. to give you a list. And also this comes back to, uh, this is actually really interesting from complexity theory. It would be too expensive well, first, to give the option not to choose because you have to make mm. a decision in the moment. Mm. The second thing mm -hmm. that's too expensive, and this is also interesting from the perspective of the law of requisite variety, you cannot write a rule book that is so long that lists all the possible things that can happen because the world is unpredictable. You do not know what can happen. You cannot put your in your book, you know, if bed bugs, then do X, if this, then do X or Y, Z, because you will not know what will happen. So if a minimum specification would be customer first, use your best judgment, make sure that the customer is happy, here's $2,000, you decide, and then we learn from experience and we build a case study based on mm. not exactly only what happened, but most especially what was the process of thinking that you used, because that's actually the most interesting thing for us. Right. And again, you are allowing for self-organization and you're allowing for people to use their best judgment. And you're also allowing people to learn as opposed to, well, if there is a, a 200 pages rule book about what to do in each case, I also take the responsibility off my own judgment. And I say, well, you right. know, I did what the book would tell me to do. And that's one of the major reasons why people have customer complaints and I call my phone operator and I'm not happy and I want to change and they feel that they can't, right? Like, right. I, I guess people complain when... Uh, they're not listened to and their case is not included in the rule book. So basically uh, allowing for self-organizing entities, and this entity could be one person or could be group to appear and grow in, a, in mm -hmm. an organization, it's, it has long-term positive ROI for the organization. Yeah. Because... Absolutely. If, uh, the way I'm thinking about this, just to add to it, is like if you have a 50 pages rule book, mm -hmm. you need an organ, uh, a team, mm -hmm. or many teams to maintain, 
communicate what mm-hmm. these laws mean, what is um, in mm-hmm. which use cases and case situation need to apply. You need a whole big team to update, maintain, communicate the, yeah. the, the laws of this book, which itself already coming with the cost. Then you mm-hmm. need to make sure in a thousand people organization, everyone would ha- need to have the same understanding of this. Because uh, otherwise, we, because that's why didn't you spend months on or years to create a really this thick book of laws, right? Right. So basically, um, the way I'm picking from you is like, if you strive to achieve a minimum set of ex- specification or rules, mm-hmm. um, it would be easier for entities to organize themselves to have enough sense of autonomy enough mm. sense of autonomy to say okay i actually have to make decisions i have to use my creativity here mm-hmm. yeah and judgment of the situation to make the best situation decision and guess what after 2000 euros i'm okay yeah and and uh, th- th- exactly and and this is something that you can achieve uh, it's less expensive than writing the 50 pages book, which, as you said, you know, always needs to be updated. And we don't know what will happen tomorrow night because there is another shift and we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Right. That is the point of uncertainty. But also uh, you can do that while you have a consistent culture because people get socialized into a culture. And this is the way we do things around here. So you also have a sense of the minimum specifications speak to the culture that we want to have. So it's not that, you know, one person does one thing one night and then the other person does something that is completely opposite because as, as a, as an organization, as a brand, you want to ensure enough consistency. It feels like this is a customer service that you got from our brand and not the competing mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. but you can socialize people into a culture and you can design the minimum specifications in a way that, you know, people getting socialized into a certain culture get also to, to see not only what I would do, but what would my boss do? And you can build a culture by having people share the stories, by reviewing the decisions after the fact, but they will need to make a decision in the moment when nobody else is there. So you need to allow them even room for some acceptable mistakes. And, um, and then people get to share what is the way that we would do things around here, which is one of the early, which is one of the simplest definitions of culture in management. Okay. What is the way we do things around here? Mm-hmm. So you can ensure consistency while at the same time you allow for self-organization. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the promising, that's actually to me one of the promising things around complexity because mm-hmm. when we start talking about complexity, it can easily overwhelm the people and say, oh, but I don't have all the answers or what I don't know, mm-hmm. like, or it's unpredictable. What will we, how can we decide if we don't have all the options available or if we don't exactly know what will happen next? But sometimes complexity can be liberating when you embrace the fact that the leader doesn't need to have all the answers, mm-hmm. but they feel the pressure. This is something that consistently comes comes up with uh, the clients that we work with. Mm. And again, and I say this in a very neutral way without putting blame sure. on anyone or anything. It's just mm. culturally we've been raised earlier to your earlier points about school. We've been raised in a culture where we're supposed to have the answer. We're yeah. supposed to predict the future. We're supposed to be mm. able to control how things will go. And we're accountable to how things will go because that depends on us because we were the ones in charge mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. And uh, 
And if you allow people to say, it's okay to say, I don't know, because, you know, like, uh, I cannot give you a sales target now in East Asia uh, if there is a disruption in the supply chain, because it doesn't matter how skilled you are, there are some variables mm. that are beyond your control. So I cannot make you responsible for the fact that, you know, sales dropped by 20% because mm. <laughs> it was it was something way beyond your control. And so that is also, it's one of the conversations that we're having um, recently, but it's a long conversation, for, I, I think, for the past years around, do you make people accountable for results or do you make people accountable for learning? Because oh. sometimes, oh. because sometimes, oh. well, because sometimes, so let's put it this way. Sometimes you are in mm. charge. Sometimes you are the one who has a really big influence on the cause and effect kind of relationships because what you did actually made the company go better. Say 70, yeah. 80% of the times that's the case. There are other times when, again, the example of the sales and there is a conflict that now started, you cannot be held responsible for what happened because it's way beyond your control. Right. You shouldn't fire the engineer or the salesperson in Asia because a war started off. And mm. of course the sales went down. But what you can do is that you can make people accountable for learning. And I heard you in the mm. latest episode of the podcast talking about learning as opposed to mm. uh, as a way to gauge, okay, how can we learn from? Uh, we're running many experiments. Right. Uh, we don't need to be accountable for if I'm running five experiments and I want to start a new startup company with the mortality rate, if one goes well and the other four die, I shouldn't be punished for, for the for the four that died, but but more for the fact that I'm learning what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. If you you can make people accountable for learning, and I think it's more rewarding, uh, and I think more fair because sometimes you are just fooled by randomness and you think that you know the company went well because of that decision, and sometimes people don't have either credit or blame for something that they did because you know, causal opacity, maybe we don't know uh, whether it was because of their decision, but you can make people accountable for learning. Okay, what can we learn about the ways in which we're running these experiments or running this company Mm. or putting our sales target in place? Right. And then, you know, it's beautiful, like comparison results versus learning because results, the way I see it, my immediate reaction to this comparison here is, when you expecting results means that you you have a clearer understanding of the situation. So mm-hmm. you could say, I want the results to look like this. Mm-hmm. I want, for example, to have uh, to double the sales next month mm-hmm. because we brought in a few sales colleagues or we're tapping into a new market or mm. what have right? Um, so for for predictable topics or for established business models or for established markets or for certain st- staple mm. product that you know you've been you've been selling this product for ten years now, you could predict results. Yes, not for the next two years, you know. It's same to weather condition. You can look at the tomorrow yeah, weather it's condition. It's pretty accurate. Pretty accurate, but a week from now, no. Nah. Right? So learnings is 
the results, the key result everyone should be pursuing, especially in the field of innovation, because you have no idea absolutely where you want to where you want to land. Like especially, like you mm. know, right now, for example, internally we're trying to incorporate AI to as a as a um, to input our creative ideas to an AI and get output. So we want to really use AI as a as a creative engine. A new topic. Hmm. For me, how can I put results on this? Mm. Like because if I put results on this, I limit the, the 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 potential for learning. And learning right now is more important for us right now than business. Right. And paradoxically, if you put a result, as you said, like you say, well, we're only going there, and then there are like ten other opportunities that open up, and you say, no, 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 we're only going there. That's the only yeah, result. Yeah. Like actually, but the other ten yeah. were actually even more more interesting as opportunities. No, 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 no. We only have one goal. <laughs> and paradoxically, you close off yourself from the opportunities that open up as well. And another paradox, Berat, this is another paradox. And, and I want to just mm. say that throughout this conversation, uh, really complexity is a land of paradoxes to me. And I've mm. been... Become, That's beautiful. It's, <laughs> I've become better over the years at accepting that complexity is a land of paradoxes. We can also... Uh, zoom into one way of looking at paradoxes sure. and polarities if you're sure. interested. But but to me, one of the paradoxes here is, uh, okay, but can you make people accountable for learning and still give an incentive as an overall direction? Of course, we want to go there as a company, right? Because of course we want, you know, maybe not in these three months, that's okay. But but in the last, in the next two years, actually, we do want sales to increase or we want to mm. make progress on our sustainability goals or we want to make progress mm -hmm. on the bottom line or what have you. Um, and so you, you still have a light kind of accountability on results because you have a sense of direction, which is one mm -hmm. of the other things that I should have mentioned about complexity. So you put boundaries in place, you put, mm -hmm. you know, here's what cannot happen. You put some attractors and you give mm -hmm. a, an overall sense of direction. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, you cannot be accountable for a specific goal if it strays off just for one month. And this is one of the problems of uh, shareholder capitalism, where you have uh, quarterly results, which I think are killing mm -hmm. innovation. Uh, mm. Because, uh, again, they go with the assumption of the predictable world when it's actually not. And also they push for a short term kind of myopic perspective. That's mm -hmm. an aside. Uh, but... Uh, you can still make people accountable for learning and at the same time you can give incentives for people to go towards a certain uh a certain direction as well mm -hmm. wow mm. what are the so here's the thing um leaders we you talk about leaders that that it's been conventionally deemed of leaders to be knowing everything Mm. To be confident, like this, like archetypal, like leaders, like that, you know, we all see in these Hollywood movies that I'm going to go conquer and then yeah. I'm so charismatic that everybody fall in love with me or what have you. But that's sort of like a, the archetype that has been broadcasted more than enough. It's, it's, in, it's in our visual, it's part of our visual map of navigation of this world. Mm. So, if that's a visual um, mm -hmm. archetype of leaders for the kids of this century and next, what kind of 
visual, visual archetype we need to, we need to be broadcasting instead mm. what how would you sort of like i mean it's a very mm. very daring question so i don't ask yeah, i don't yeah. expect you to to offer me a very precise answer but like you know your immediate reaction like uh, what is the archetype of today leadership Yeah, in the midst of complex, in the midst of in the midst of increasingly complex world. Yeah, global warming, what have you, what have you, what have you. So uh, a few things. So one is that I have to accept, and I, and I need to make fun of myself that the archetype of the leader is uh, somebody in their forties or fifties, white mm -hmm. and man. And I'm noticing <laughs> that I just approached the age of okay, I just hit the deal <laughs> of leader, and and everything that I say now to my clients is actually against that kind of archetype. So I know that I have to stop profiting from the old archetype because uh, that actually it's there is a there is a vein of seriousness in this because uh, it's easy to profit from a kind of stereotype when you acknowledge. Actually, well, it would work well for me, but it doesn't work well for the world. So let's mm. acknowledge that. Um, mm. The second thing that you said exactly, uh, the old archetype is, you know, male. Well, actually, male I added. But, you know, but, but the usual kind of people who have uh, the person who has the answer. All from people. Yes. So, and mm. then uh, I think it's it's fair to say that that kind of leadership, sometimes it helps in certain scenarios where we actually need decisive action, we need somebody who knows the answers. For example, in a predictable world, right. or if there is an immediate crisis, you need mm -hmm. a type of decisiveness. We have to act fast and we need to be charismatic and all of that. It doesn't have to be a white man necessarily. So that's something right. that we have to dispel, isn't it? Um, the second thing is, especially in complexity and an unpredictable world, right. the first myth that we have to dispel is uh, the notion of uh, ways of knowing. And mm -hmm. I'm a nerdy person. I am a very cognitive person. I elaborate everything through my brain. And I can guarantee you that there is so much more to knowing the world than what we have in our brain. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm speaking again against my own kind of biases and preferences. Uh, there are ways of knowing that are embodied. There are ways of knowing that are non-cognitive. And we have to allow for other ways of knowing that are not just... Uh, Oh, yeah. the, the rationalistic kind of assumption. Uh, with that also, we have this school of thought of, you know, evidence-based decision-making that we need to have all the information and we need to have all the knowledge. Uh, that can work in a predictable world. That can work when data is reliable. More often than not, we have causal opacity and data is not reliable and there is more noise than signal in the data. So we have to look at decisions in radical uncertainty so we mm -hmm. have to be more aware of what we don't know than what we know mm -hmm. that's also one of the quibbles that i take with the notion of evidence-based decision making uh sometimes we have to make decisions on things for which we don't have evidence yet because we're we're dealing with risks and right. if we wait for the evidence it's just too late uh, so so that's the second one is the way in which we approach knowledge so the first would be Uh, you know, when is leadership, the kind of charismatic leadership useful right. when it's not useful? Uh, not necessarily a white male with that kind of charisma, uh, the ways in which we approach knowledge. And to me, there is something around, um, it's funny that we say the rise of women leadership um, because, and I'm simplifying here, so I, I beg for forgiveness to the listeners to, the, to this podcast, but, but there is a, 
there is a women, there is a, a female archetype that mm-hmm. gets more often associated with empathy, listening, being right. really good at reading emotionally the situation, right. not just cognitively, and for Correct. good reasons has been embodied by more women than men, but there is also a problem with that because we've raised women to carry the emotional load of mm. families and relationships. But in general, when we say we need a type of leadership that has more, and I say this only in terms of archetypes, more uh, women qualities, mm-hmm. because we need uh, listening and empathy and ways right. in which we can read the situation, not just from a cognitive masculine kind of patriarchy kind of perspective. And it's funny that two men are discussing this, but... <laughs> Uh, but, but definitely it, it is the, the, some of the skills that we build ob- objectively. We, we build skills that have been more often identified with, uh, with a certain leadership, with a leadership that is more uh, feminine in archetype. Um, and I think that the fourth one would be probably something that we touched upon already, Barad, which is this notion of rewarding learning. So how right. can, you, can you, can you be a decisive leader? And at the same time, this is a, Another paradox, I don't know, probably we counted three or four today. Can you be a decisive leader taking fast actions when you need, acknowledging that you don't know, and acknowledging that you have the humility of, I need to learn because I don't have all the information now. And can you say that out loud to your company or to the people who report to you? It's like, oh, the manager just said that she doesn't know. Like, is that even possible? Like, actually, yes, mm. nobody knows. It's liberating. Yeah. But can you give yourself permission to say, I don't know? And what's the culture around us that is required for us to say, I don't know? And we're still looked upon as credible leaders. I would trust more somebody who says, I don't know, in the face of uncertainty than somebody yeah. who makes some stuff up and says, oh, I know exactly what will happen in two months from now. No, you don't know. So I would trust the leader who admits yeah. not knowing. Uh, and, and then on these kind of, on these leadership qualities, there is something around listening, which to me is fundamentally important. Uh, I have a bias for this because we teach this and it seems to be extremely effective as one of the ways in which you can scan a complex system simply by listening in different ways. Mm. How do you listen to people? How do you listen to information that you don't like to hear? How do you Mm. listen to data? Uh, Also from your peers, how do you get more data in by being more open in the way in which you listen? That can open up a lot more opportunities as well, especially in the face of not knowing because you can actually scan Mm. the system better. We see this Mm. happening. We see this being like very, very effective also because that ups up, that helps you to bring up the game of a whole team when they listen to each other better. Mm-hmm. Also for naming, um, and I'm I'm sure you see this in innovation, also to name, you know, disagreements and people having different views because often innovation comes from off-field, comes from wacky ideas that people would label as wacky. But as mm-hmm. long as you can listen to each other with openness, I think you could create more opportunities for people to to hear these kind of weak signals, especially from data that they wouldn't normally pay attention to. Yeah, I think it's just sort of entering into a meditative state because as you enter a meditative state, you start picking up on your like more weakest uh, senses. Or mm. uh, and I think listening is a is an active act of meditation because mm. it's sort of like you sort of, it's like if I want to listen mm. to you, 
my ego is in the way. <laughs> right. It to be out. So it's basically, that's what meditation does. You try to sort of like get, get past beyond one's ego to be able to be in a direct interface with reality. Mm. And, and, and that's where I find listening. And that's where I find this podcasting really amazing. I, now, anytime I have a podcast appointment, I'm getting excited. I'm getting prepared. Like I'm sort of, sort of getting into the mood of it because it's a complete bliss of one hour, one hour, 20 minutes of back and forth. And, you know, and the beauty of it here is I have to speak less. I have to listen more. And the trick with that is that I know that I have so much to learn from you. And I know that I've been invited probably to speak for more often than more, more like 70% of the time, which is much more than I would be uh, comfortable with. Uh, but it's a beautiful challenge that I, that I accept as in, in a specific situation, but I feel usually uncomfortable with. I like to do the opposite and listen 70% and, and speak 30. So you pushed me there, but I accept the. More than happy to come on your podcast and just talking. talking <laughs> when forever. I have money, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Marco, this has been a beautiful, beautiful podcast, uh, beautiful conversation. So first of all, thanks for coming on. I want to be cautious of your time. It's difficult topics. And mm -hmm. I know that, you know, as an expert that actually basically in the trenches trying to mitigate some of this complex situation, you want to be careful with your words and you want to really like walk these fine lines properly and as more with more responsibility as possible. So I really appreciate coming on podcast to talk about these topics that everyone is willing to um, rightfully so because you need to be in the right mindset. So I would love to invite you for another round at some point. Let's just give it around one month or two. I would love to come back again and jump into another intellectual wrestle. And you cover a lot. I mean, I, I, I just don't know how many clips my team is going to create out of this podcast. But okay. thanks again, Carl, uh, Marco. Any last word? If you want to sort of like bring it all home, um, take it away. I uh, would love to have your closing lines. Uh, thank you so much. It's been, likewise, it's been an absolute pleasure for me. And it's nice to, to be in dialogue with you also because, uh, uh, it's uh, it's also thought provoking. Just if you notice the the power of how a question kind of can shape someone's mm -hmm. uh, thinking, and maybe maybe I'll tie this to the final words because uh, the maybe I'll tie it with the the latest point that we that we talked about, the last point that we talked about around uh, listening. Um, mm -hmm. What are the questions that we ask ourselves in complexity can really shape mm -hmm. the ways in which we can look at a complex problem. And what becomes possible and what becomes impossible, given the questions that we ask ourselves. So uh, credit to you for the really good questions that you asked. A reminder to us all, what are the questions that we ask ourselves in a complex problem? Uh, are we asking ourselves the same old questions that we knew the answer to last year? And we are asking them again this year. And the problem has changed. Mm. And then we feel comfortable mm. because the questions are the same. And we feel kind of that we know what's going on, even though we don't. And so just a reminder of the power of questions to stimulate thoughts and uh, make us see what becomes possible when we ask these open, curious questions. So, and that is big thanks to you. Uh, thanks for the engaging questions. And it's been an absolute uh, pleasure. And I look forward to talking again soon. I told you, folks, uh, you were here for a treat. A beautiful conversation with Marco. Until next episode.
Thank you. Bye-bye. Ciao.